book tucked away just a couple of books before we start the New Testament. Last week we began this series with a question about whether or not we find God to be idle. And today we're going to delve into whether or not God is silent. So Habakkuk chapter 1, we're going to do verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 5. And I'd just like if everyone would just uh, join me for just a moment. We'd like to pray and for God's help just once more. Lord, it's uh, studies like this that are difficult for us to look into because they're so revealing of how off we truly are with our understanding. So Lord, we ask for great clarity this morning. We ask that whatever uh, cloudiness, whatever callousness is built up around our hearts and kept these truths from penetrating, we ask that would be removed. We ask that veil would be torn, which separates um, our understanding from the truth of who you are and who you've revealed yourself to be. I ask for the situations that are represented in here this morning, so many different different situations happening, that you would speak to their hearts, you'd speak to your people, and Lord, you would guide and direct our thoughts to bring glory to your name. So we ask this in Christ's precious name. All God's people said, Amen. I'm going to just read this with everyone, starting at verse 12 of chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing the nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower, and look out to see what he will say to me, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has had never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. 
So as we're delving into this passage this morning, it's a heavy one, and there's a lot of questions uh, that we can have about it, and these are good questions, questions that we should have. I put these sheets together because they were a request of several people. They liked them last time we did them. Um, so if it's useful to you, use it. If not, it's a good bookmark. Um, if not, it adds to our recycling. So um, you can just follow along, and uh, hopefully your Bibles are open. And we're going to answer the question today, is God silent? There's three points I want to make out of this passage today, three points that are clearly revealed here. First is recognizing God's sovereignty is not the same as liking it. Just because something is true doesn't mean that you have to like it or like that it's true. We can uh, put our thumb down on lots of things in our lives that we do not like, but that does not mean that they are untrue. It just means that we don't like them. There is a difference between our taste or what appeals to us and what is true. So recognizing that God is sovereign, being able to recognize that is not the same as liking that he is sovereign. Let's look at the passage for a second here. It says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord? My God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? goes on to say, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So that's the question. So here we see something interesting in Habakkuk's response. Remember, he started off by saying, God, are you idle? Do you not care that these things are happening? This question today is, God, are, are you silent? Are you remaining silent? But I want everyone to notice here that Habakkuk acknowledges God's sovereignty, but admittedly doesn't like it. He doesn't like it. So he says, yes, the Chaldeans are coming, and they are coming in judgment for us. But I don't like it. We don't have to like something for it to be true. Why is that? Because God doesn't check his plans with us. Don't you wish that was the case? Don't you wish before the next person that comes into your life with a vile attitude would have to... Uh, God would check in with you first before he allows that person to walk through the door? Are you ready for this today? Are you ready for what I have for you? God doesn't check his plans with us. Psalm 115, 2-3 says this, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He does all that who? He pleases. God does all that He pleases. He does what He wants. He is completely and totally sovereign. It's not like you or I. We make plans tomorrow to do this and that, and God can say, nope, and it doesn't happen. God does what He wants. He's sovereign. Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? In heaven and on earth. 
So understand, he's, he's not just ruling and reigning in heaven. It's down here too. In the seas and all deeps. There's not a place where God is not ruling and reigning today. There's no place outside of his control. There's no place where he's like, oh, I'm surprised that happened. Doesn't happen. God is completely and totally sovereign. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 says this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, your, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish my purpose. What God wants, God gets. That's difficult for us to swallow sometimes because we're like, God, why are you letting me go through this? And at times we say, God, why is it that you're not answering my prayers? Why is it that you're silent? So Habakkuk makes a good point. Yes, I understand that you are sending these people to us in judgment, but aren't they going overboard? Should they be able to just kill and rule mercilessly? Why are you silent at this? He's looking at God, saying, why do you allow things to get this far? But the truth is, for Habakkuk and also for us, God's sovereignty is often misunderstood. Often, we think that sovereignty means that there is going to be good around every single corner. If God is in control, then nothing bad can ever happen. And there are many people in here that can testify this morning that that simply is not so. Misunderstanding God's sovereignty leads to doubt and trusting in other things. Misunderstanding God's sovereignty leads to doubt and trusting in other things. So yes, I can acknowledge that God is in control of the entire universe, but this thing he doesn't seem to care about. So I'm going to ask this person to help me here. Anyone ever seen the movie Faust? That old silent film from the 20s? Anybody watched that? A great movie. Faust is a highly, he's the bearded man here, a highly religious man. Loves God, studies God's word, and whenever there's trouble, they come to Faust. Faust, appeal to God for us. Maybe Faust has an answer. Well, the plague strikes his area and people are dying left and right. So where does everyone turn to? Faust. Faust, will you appeal to God for us? Faust goes and he appeals to God and appeals to God and still people are dying. So he says, fine. If God won't answer, the devil will. And he makes a deal with the devil. And the devil gives and gives and gives. He gives him youth. He gives him uh, another chance at life. And Faust falls for it, head over heels. That's a very sad and tragic story in the end. Love, which should not have been, becomes and is destroyed. There's something very sentimental about the end when he and the love of his life are burning in the flames and he goes back to his old self. It, it has a great conclusion. It's a, it's a very good conclusion for an older movie especially. They have a lot of good special effects. But the idea here, what I mean to point out, is not just that this is a fantastic movie that you should watch, but that when Faust can't get an answer from God, 
Faust goes and makes a deal with the devil. And people are probably thinking, well, I, I didn't make a deal with the devil. When we're appealing to a power apart from God to take care of, of our business, we are in spiritual warfare. Remember, in the book of Isaiah, the people were not receiving the answers that they wanted, so they turned to the necromancers. They turned to seances. They said, perhaps the dead can give us answers as to why these things are coming upon us. And God's answer, is there not a God among you? Is there not a God that you can appeal to? Though they knew God was among them, though they, know, they knew they could appeal to Him, He wasn't giving the answers, so they turned to other places. Perhaps we can turn to the spiritual realm, into seances. Perhaps we can turn to the orbs. Perhaps we can turn to the crystal balls and they'll give us the answer. The crystal ball does not have the answer. That is another source apart from God. And God says no. So often, we have this struggle where we don't understand sovereignty. And this struggle leads us to the point where we doubt and we start trusting in other things. Just like our friend Faust here. Second point, we may not always agree with how God is ruling. And this seems like a point that shouldn't have to be made, but it's true. You and I spend an awful lot of time in struggle saying, if I were God, I wouldn't let this happen. Well, God, can't you please just take this away? I can't believe you're doing this to me. It's almost like we're presuming that God is more wicked than we are. God, how can you let this thing happen? Why is this your plan? But the truth is, we may not always agree with how God is ruling, but He's still ruling. Why would you allow me to go through this? This hurt, this devastation, this sickness. Why would you allow me to see this thing in front of me? Why are you looking and doing nothing? Just when things get difficult does not mean that God is not still ruling and reigning. He still is. Can I get an amen? Uh, the verses say this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. See, Habakkuk has no qualms with bringing up his complaint to God. You and I shouldn't either. It's, there's not a problem with us appealing to God and saying, God, why? There's no problem in that. The problem is when we don't listen for His response. The problem is when we do not do something with the response that He gives us. There's nothing wrong with us conversing with God. As a matter of fact, it's all throughout the Scriptures. Start reading through the Psalms. Not as a devotional, but just start reading and looking for the words of an honest human being. Saying, God, things are hard, and I don't know why. Yet I look to you. Remember the psalmist wrote, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And the only chance for restoration that this person who was writing this saw was to turn his hope once again to God, to look toward the future, to know that things are not beyond his control. So Habakkuk recognizes that God is sovereign and that God is in control. He sees that and he raises his complaint and he says, I don't like it. 
But nevertheless, even if we don't like it, does not mean that God is not still ruling and reigning. Romans 9 tells us this. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? A thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have the right to say over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? God's going to do what he wants to with his stuff. Because it is his stuff. And just because we don't like something does not mean that it's untrue. Just because we do not like something, that doesn't make it untrue. We live in a time today, or two years ago, you wouldn't think anyone would have a, a problem with me making a statement like this. I don't like air. There's still air. I don't like Pepsi. People are still drinking Pepsi. I don't like plaid, but I'm wearing it. That doesn't change the fact that it is true. Today, people don't like something, so they make it untrue. It's not true. I'll tell you my truth. God is absolutely and totally sovereign. And at times it may be a struggle for us. And at times we may question it. But it does not change the fact that it's true. Point number three, God is not sleeping. That great old Christmas carol, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. God is not dead nor doth he sleep. He is not sleeping. So what's he doing? What's he doing? The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain, excuse me, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The truth is this. It may seem to us like God is not speaking. It may seem to us like God is doing nothing. But the truth is, often, you and I believe that for one reason and one reason only. Because he's not saying what we want him to. Or he's not saying it in the way we want him to. If you all remember this great and beautiful scene. Beautiful scene. Elijah, this great prophet... At least we're told he's a great prophet. Goes and speaks to a wicked king. And basically says, uh, your God will not do. You need the one true Jehovah. So he goes and he challenges these prophets. And um, they come and God fails them. And then those prophets are slaughtered. 
the greatest victory that could possibly be, that we possibly could, could read of. And then we get to this really weird scene where right afterwards, um, Elijah runs past the chariot that's carrying Ahab all the way to the gate of the city. So here is Ahab on this chariot with a horse, and Elijah runs past him. And he gets there and stands with his arms crossed at the gate. You can almost picture kind of a smirk on his face. Yes, I'm adding uh, to, to the word here, but um, I'm just trying to give everybody some context here. Just, just use your own, your own sanctified imagination. Ahab goes in and he tells his wife Jezebel all that had happened, and she writes a letter saying to Elijah that you are going to die just like my prophets did, just like my prophetesses did. Elijah stands in victory until he gets this letter. And this letter absolutely defeats him. So he goes with his servant and he leaves his servant in Beersheba and travels a little bit farther into the wilderness and goes to the mountain of God. He finds a cave. He ducks into it. And he's going to die. That's his plan. And I just want to read this small passage to everyone here, starting in verse 9. I know I have 11 to 13, just for context. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. He said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said... Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? In comes the heat. In comes the wind that rips apart pieces of the mountain. That's where you ex expect God to be. But he's not there. In comes the earthquake where you would expect God to be. But he's not there. In comes the fire where you would expect God to be, but he's not there. And all of a sudden, with a tiny whisper, uh, there he is. There he is. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. The truth is, we can't see the whole picture. God doesn't behave like we want Him to behave. So we want God to act in a particular way, and we can pray and ask if God would do that, but the truth is, God is completely and totally sovereign. Yes, prayer changes things, and yes, God is still sovereign. He still does what He wants. If God chooses to respond to our prayers in that way, that's His choice. You and I have no idea what's happening. Think of Joseph just for a moment. Joseph goes and is taken, and first his brothers are going to kill him. 
Imagine you're in a 10-foot deep pit with sand walls listening to your brothers talking about how to hide your body. That seem like God has his best in mind when he allows that to happen? And they say, no, 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 look, some, some people are coming from a different country. Some Midianite traders, let's pull them out and let's sell Joseph to them. So they do. And they lie, they take his cloak, the coat that his dad made, that, that multicolored coat, and rip it and put animal blood on it and take it back to the father. Joseph gets in Egypt, and he cannot speak the same language as these people. Wasn't raised there. And he gets taken, gets himself into some trouble after doing nothing wrong. Doesn't seem like it's good. Potiphar's wife accuses him. He runs away. He goes and gets locked up, put into jail. There in the jail, it also seems like all is going to go wrong, but it doesn't because he can interpret dreams. He's allowed out and he saves not only Egypt, but Israel also. And the Joseph in the end of the story looks back as he's looking at his brothers and says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph couldn't see the whole picture when he was in the bottom of the pit. He couldn't see the whole picture when he was sold to these men, when he was riding on the back of their camels, going where he did not know. Couldn't see the whole picture when he got there and was sold. He couldn't see the whole picture when he was in jail. He couldn't see the whole picture when those two men that he had helped out had forgotten him. Yet in the end, looking back, we can see what God has done. We can't see the whole picture. Why? Because God is working in ways that we can't always understand. And we should be grateful. We should be grateful. God knows the beginning from the end. You and I ought to be very grateful that God doesn't just allow us to see everything because we would be so fearful. We wouldn't understand. God is working in all of these different ways. And if you think about some of the things in your life that you've went through, you would not have chosen to go through them. Can I get an Amen. Yeah, you're here. You're stronger. Maybe you feel weaker. But you can go through just a little bit more than you could before. You can look back and you can see times when you thought God was quiet. God speaks loudest. And we don't expect Him to. We think God's not doing anything. Oh, he's talking. He's talking at the bedside. He's saying goodbye to a loved one. He's speaking when a newborn's being born into the world. Because his fingerprints are on everything. He's speaking when nations are at war. And you and I think he's so quiet. He's speaking. God is absolutely and totally sovereign. So we can question 
we can ask within our hearts, God, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why would you allow this? And the truth is, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God can see everything, knows everything. One day, you and I are going to stand in eternity with God. He's going to explain beginning to end to us. Oh, that's why you allowed that. Uh, I see. So I ask everyone this morning, what evil is seeming to have the upper hand in your life? Because I know everyone has it. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe you know it's a job. Maybe I, I don't know. I don't know what everyone's going through. I know some of the things people are going through. What evil is seeming to have the upper hand in your life? Take heart. Take heart. Don't let it defeat you. It can't defeat you. It can't defeat you. God is not sleeping. He's on the job. He's not silent. He's not waiting for just the perfect moment to speak. He's been speaking the entire time. He spoke you into being. Don't forget who knitted you together inside your mother's womb. It was God. Take heart. He's not silent. Even when it seems like God is not speaking, He is there. He is there. And He is sovereign. And He is ruling. And He is in control. And there is not one thing that you and I go through that God has allowed to slip through the cracks. He doesn't. His love for you is so amazing. So amazing. How amazing is it? I want you to think of the situation of Jesus Christ just for a moment. It seemed as though God literally was silent for about 400 years because we have uh, God speaking and then the last prophet after that, after Malachi, we have nothing for 400 years. And um, where, where are you, God? Where are you? Why are you not doing anything? Why are you not speaking? And then all of a sudden, the book of Matthew, there's an explosion. Oh, there you are. Even in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we see that God was not silent because throughout all of those days, throughout all of those generations, God was doing something. It's everyone's favorite place to be. I just want to read just for two seconds from uh, the introduction in the book of Matthew. I'm sure everybody already has this memorized and could repeat it if I asked you to, but let me just read some of this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. So already we have a bunch of messed up people. Can I get an amen? How messed up are they? Well, just think for a second. We have Abraham who lies and says that his wife is his sister. We have Abraham who uh, does not believe that God's going to give him the promise that he gave him, so his wife's like, well, here's my maidservant. Why don't you carry out the promise with her? Not a great guy. Not a great guy. We have Isaac. We have Jacob. Jacob's name, uh, he was the deceiver. He's the one that lied and stole his brother's birthright. I mean, not a great guy all around. He gets in this mixed-up tangle to get his wife and ends up getting tricked into getting another wife and uh, then he has to stay seven more years to get the wife that he loved. He has this, this huge, long, drawn-out tale of, of just deception. 
Then we get to the story of Judah. The story of Judah and Tamar makes no sense. Why is it there? It's in Joseph's story. We're reading Joseph's story, and all of a sudden, we're interrupted by Genesis 37. Why? Why? And for those that do not remember, let me just give you a four-second refresher. Uh, Judah, one of the sons of Israel, is, uh, is going out, and um, his son was married to Tamar, and uh, she did not have a child by him, and she died, so he was supposed to give her one of the other brothers to give her a child, a boy child, but he doesn't. So when she's out on the street after years and years and years of uh, his lives, she dresses up as a harlot. And he comes and he purchases her. And she keeps uh, his, his staff and his cloak. And later on, they find out Tamar's pregnant. And Judah's mad. He wants her dead. Because she should not have done this thing. And she sends back the staff and the cloak and said, these belong to the man who purchased me that day. And he said, she's more righteous than I am. Messed up story. God's still in control. Amen? He's still in control. He allowed that thing to happen. Do you understand that that story is part of Jesus' birth line? And it goes on. Boaz. Rahab, Obed and Ruth, David. I mean, David's the man after God's own heart, but we read through his story, and, and his story is attended with all kinds of just things that we would not put there if we were writing it. Which is proof that the Bible is true, and God does not withhold things from us. Then you go through all these kings, these horrible, wicked kings that did all these horrible, terrible things. And God was always in control. He never stopped ruling. He never stopped reigning. God was in control of everything. He never stopped. Uzziah. Ahaz. Manasseh. So many men. So much evil. And God was there. And we look back and we look through that whole story. What's the final product? Jesus Christ. Wow. You and I don't know the end from the beginning. But I can tell you this. God's not quiet. He's not silent. He's not waiting. Things are happening. And the situation that you are going through, as bleak as it may seem, God's not done yet. Let's pray together.